0: You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show.
1: Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis podcast. Today, I have, this is a hat trick, Barbara. This is your third visit to the podcast. You are the first to be a three-time visitor. I'm, to- I'm excited, Scott. I'm, I'm honored. I, I'm going to read your bio, but now you need to add three times on the Pharnesis Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. <laughs> so everybody, welcome to the podcast. And I'm excited for this conversation today. It's an important conversation that we're going to have. I have Dr. Barbara Kellerman as I mentioned, she's been on a couple times before. She's a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership. She was a founding executive director of the center and a member of the Kennedy School faculty for over 20 years. She's held professorships at Fordham, Tufts, Farley Dickinson, George Washington, Dartmouth. And in spring 2022, she is a visiting professor of leadership at Christopher Newport University. She's also served as director of the Center for the Advanced Study of Leadership at the University of Maryland. Perhaps most important for our conversation today, in addition to everything else, she has a master's degree from Yale and Russian and East European studies. And so we were kind of in conversation, Barbara. I thought this would be a wonderful time to have you on to help us make sense of how how you're seeing the situation that's unfolding in Ukraine. I'm excited for this conversation, not only because of your expertise in Eastern Europe and Russia, but also because of the lens, the leadership system lens that we've talked about in the past that you look at leadership through, which is that you know this is a relationship between the leader, the followers, and the context. And I think we've already come up with a name for the podcast episode, The Month That Shook the World. So maybe you bring us into that title, and then let's begin by focusing on the context a little bit. That sounds good, Scott. Again, thank you very much for
2: inviting me. I'm happy to be part of this conversation, especially, I guess, at this moment in history. Two comments about the month that shook the world, or two things I'll say at the outset. First of all, this is a mixed blessing. It's mainly negative and tragic. But I will start by saying that for students of leadership, leadership and followership, whatever, this is grist for our mill. Uh, The Mm -hmm. dynamics among global leaders, the dynamics among global followers, that is, when I say global, I mean almost all over the world. It's enormously gripping, fascinating, depressing, instructive, surreal at moments, deeply sad at moments. It is nevertheless instructive. And I really urge any student of leadership expert on leadership to pay close attention. This, this goes to undergraduates as well as graduate students and you know more advanced scholars. I think most Americans and people around the world, many people around the world are paying close attention. But again, mm-hmm. for students of leadership, there's so much to unpackage here. It's a learning opportunity that is, I hope, unlikely to come along again in the, in the imminent future. Yes, the month that shook the world. That is a, really a reference to the global context. I think it's fair to say that the Russia's invasion of Ukraine almost a month ago is almost certain to p- change the global system in ways we could not have imagined two months ago. Mm. It's already changed the dynamics in Europe. The most obvious example of that is Germany which has reversed course and upped its military national security budget in ways that were unthinkable until the invasion happened. The Americans, and actually Donald Trump, high on the list, have been pressing the Germans to do that for a long time, and they have been resisted, clinging to their neutral relative neutrality that grew out of uh, their experience with World War II, bolstered NATO, bolstered America's alliance with the Europeans uh, brought China into the conversation again in ways, as some of us know, Biden and Xi talked, I I gather, for two hours today. That's Mm. my understanding. I'm not sure what uh, I haven't heard yet what might have come out of the call or didn't. This is hard on the heels of what, again, just a month or a month and a half ago, it was called an agreement, but it was a near alliance between China and Russia when Putin traveled to Beijing during during the Olympics that took place in Beijing, the Winter Olympics, and the two cozied up to each other in ways that had not been the case since the alliance between Russia and China or then the Soviet Union and China in the late 1950s. Again, and, and the South American countries are coming into this because of economies, because of oil, energy needs, Again, this is really changing the power dynamics. One more comment on shook the world. For those of us who have been around for a while, there was something almost surreal about about the occasion of the invasion. It was telegraphed. The Americans certainly had warned that this was likely, American intelligence has been extremely good on this issue. Uh, American intelligence warned that it was coming When it actually happened, the idea that there was likely to be, again, this kind of bloody war on the European continent, which had seemed so unthinkable until it actually did happen, happen, was really an occasion for us to wake up and to remind ourselves, and nobody's more fond of the contextual and followership approach than I am, but it was a reminder of the havoc That essentially one man, a totalitarian leader, and we can talk about totalitarian leadership if you would like at some point, Scott, was able to do. In one of my blogs, I actually wrote that I thought the leader-follower dynamic, that language really fails us here. Because Mm. a better way of thinking about it is that Putin was the lead actor. If we were watching a play, he'd be the main actor in the play and everybody else, everybody, and I include Biden and all the other leaders of the Western European countries were reactors. That's almost a better way of looking at it than the traditional leader follower lens. Hmm.
1: Let's let's stick real quick for a moment on China and Russia. Because this is a, in some ways, as you mentioned, a little bit of a contextual shift, right? You've written about Xi and it primarily that was in leaders who lust. Talk about the relationship between these two individuals, uh, Putin and Xi, and, and the relationship between Russia and China, because that that seems to me to be just a very, very critical variable in this whole endeavor, right? You're absolutely right, Scott. No
2: no player other than the players themselves who were embroiled in the war is more important than Xi's China. I call it Xi's China because One can have a discussion as to whether he's an authoritarian leader or a totalitarian one, but he has, since he came to power in 2012, 2013, he has every year accrued. That is Xi. I'm talking about Xi Jinping, president of China, uh, leader of the Communist Party of China. He has every year since 2013 accrued more and more power and been less and less inhibited about doing so. So yes, it's a very big deal. He obviously he could be seen as the linchpin of what happens if he I wouldn't say sides with the rest, but if he listens to Biden and NATO and exerts some sort of pressure on Putin that will push Putin even further into a corner. But if he does not, it not only complicates the Ukrainian situation, but it sets a miserably negative path for the future. Again, these two countries, I mentioned it briefly, China and the Soviet Union slash Russia have a very complicated history. When Stalin was still alive, those were the years that Mao came to power. Mao came to power, Mao Zedong came to power in 1949. And his model at the time, Stalin was in power till he died in 1953. His model at the time was Stalin. And in the early years of Mao being in power, uh, he looked to Stalin and those two countries really were allies. Mm. This alliance broke up. Not only did Stalin die, but Mao eventually found his own footing. He didn't need the Soviet Union anymore. And and that alliance broke up in the 1960s and certainly in the 70s and 80s. But there is a history there of a Chinese-Russian, again, Soviet alliance, that, that is very important here. In other words, these two countries did not out of the blue, these two men, Xi and, and Putin, did not out of the blue forge an alliance or, an, as I said, they called it an agreement at the Winter Olympics. There is a history there. The last thing I'll say on this is they are like minded in that they are authoritarian leaders who, who would prefer to be left alone, to exercise total control over their countries and over We could use the word empire here broadly, but uh, Xi, like Putin, has been interested in adding to his realm, most obviously already very successfully, if that's the
1: right word, in Hong Kong. Talk more about other factors that you are observing in the contexts. I think the most important
2: contextual comment here, Scott, is actually not about Germany or about China, if I might. I want to go back, speaking of context, to the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. That is really at the heart of what we're talking about. You know, in the beginning, it was said about Putin, but what he really wants to do is push back against NATO. But as analysts have looked at this more closely, and I certainly agree with that and begin myself always with history, we have a much, much better understanding of why it was that Putin decided to go in in the first place. Most analysts, and now I'm talking about military analysts, feel it was misguided, mistaken, and that he was counting on an easy victory. Setting that aside, he was counting on an easy victory not because he's a madman. We can have another conversation about whether he is or is not a rational actor, at least in our conception of what a rational actor is. Uh, one needs to go back, as I said, to the history, the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. It goes all the way back pre to pre-Soviet days. Soviet Union, of course, came after the Russian Revolution in 1917. This goes back to the days of the empire. As you hmm. know, Scott, in Ukraine, there's a real mix of Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. And in Russia, there are many people Ukrainian families, Ukrainian ancestry, they really, you know, this notion, uh, I think Putin used the word brethren, our brother, we want to unite our brethren. He didn't pull that again out of thin air. There is a, a very close history there. One could argue that when the Soviet Union came, the more formal name was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. That's because each republic, including Ukraine, was at least on paper its own formal identity. Hmm. So Ukraine, between you know 1917, 1918, 1919, 1920, 19, until the collapse of the Soviet Union, 89, 90, 91, uh, was its technically its own sovereign state. Technically, not literally, yeah. not actually, but technically pro forma. That's not what Putin wanted. He didn't invade Ukraine to have a separate independent state, his image, his fantasy was to unite Ukraine with Russia. That's really what he wanted. Now, Ukraine has its own very complicated history, setting aside Russian history. I will make that quite contemporaneous and talk about two H words. The great Yale historian Timothy Snyder wrote a book called Bloodlands. I think one of the best books about World War II in which he argues that the center of World War II was in Eastern Europe, Ukraine at the very heart of it. So think of Ukraine as the bloodlands during the Holocaust and then go back in time to the 1930s when there was the Holomodor, the great famine of 32, 33, that Stalin inflicted on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Ukraine, in short, has an extremely, inordinately tragic history, recent, apart from the complexities of way back, it has an inordinately tragic recent history, going back to the period not long after the Russian Revolution, and continuing through World War II, to come quite close to the present. In 2004, it has been called the Orange Revolution when Ukrainians started to revolt against the Russian-imposed president of Ukraine. Street protests, already hostilities by Ukrainians toward Russians, although not united. I repeat, not united the way they are now. And then 10 years later, in 2014, was what's called the revolution of dignity, when Mm -hmm. again, the Ukrainians took to the streets to push out a Russian backed president. Putin was so furious, this is 2014, very recently, not long ago, that that's when he took Crimea and that's when he had Russian troops occupy East Ukraine, the so-called Donbass region. So the best way of thinking about, best contextual way of thinking about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine of a month ago is to put it in the context of the relationship between Ukraine and Russia since the collapse of communism. In particular, Putin's yearning to have Ukraine absorbed back into the Russian sphere and Ukrainians resisting, although, of course, not resisting the way they are now. Nor as united, there were divisions in Ukraine that seem essentially not to exist at this time. So okay. now you have a whole obviously a whole other uh whole other ball game a whole other kind of conflict but that the conflict of now is grounded in at least the last 15 years not to speak of much further back.
1: If we take the conversation now given that general landscape if we take that conversation to a couple core actors let's go to let's go to Putin and then Let's, to the extent that we can, uh, how does the, the, the follower relationship uh, connect with Putin in the context of Russia right now? To your point, maybe there aren't followers, just kind of scared people around him that uh, really don't have much choice in any matter. Take us into to the mind of this individual, how you view him.
2: I'm gonna to return to Putin in a moment. Again, I just wanna point out what I said a little earlier, Scott in a way, we're all his followers right now because Mm -hmm. the Bidens and the Olaf Scholz's meaning chancellor of Germany and the Boris Johnson's and the NATO secretary general, they're all following his lead in a weird way. In other words, Mm -hmm. they're doing what they have to do to respond to this man. So depending on how you define leader and follower, it's a kind of curious dynamic. Maybe again, actor and reactor is a better way of thinking of it. Putin, you know, for convenience sake, Scott, I'm going to divide his tenure in power into three, okay? okay. Yep. Three stages. He's been in power 22 years. This is very broadly speaking. 22 okay. years he's been in power. For the sake of this exchange to economize it, for the first 10 years, <laughs> he was sort of reasonable. I mean, He was dictatorial, but it was within reason. Russia did not become North Korea. It was not that closed a society. As you know, there have been exchanges and were exchanges, whether it's students or artists, back and forth. And it was never a a cozy relationship with the West, but it was okay. And within Russia, after a period of turmoil, after the wall fell and communism collapsed 1990 1991 was 10 years of chaos and disarray in Russia yeah. so when he took over he brought stability and order and he revived the Russian economy he was the kind of strong man that people will look for always everybody who knows who studies leadership knows that when there's chaos people want a strong man so in the year 2000 the Russians who had zero and have zero tradition of democracy and a long history of strongman rule, welcomed Putin. And indeed, he brought order and stability and a reasonable degree of relative prosperity to Russia between roughly, again, 2000 and 2010. Hmm. The next 10 years, he began as people, you know, to the old saw power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's a, you know, a real interest of mine is what happens over time. And indeed, between 2010 and 2020, he became that much more autocratic. Again, not dissimilar from Xi, as I just mentioned earlier. It's what happens when these people are are in leadership roles year after year after year after year, when they are prone to autocratic tendencies anyway, they can tip from autocratic rule into totalitarian rule. So that's stage two. Stage three, it has been said about him, I wasn't there, I'm not in the Kremlin, but many observers have commented, including the French president, that because of COVID, in other words, roughly speaking, the last two years, Putin has become more isolated and more set in his ways, more rigid in his thinking, fewer people with whom he interacted, in in other words, his already very small circle has shrunk even further, and he has been left alone to some degree to his thoughts and Ukraine, which we know because he wrote a 5,000 world document on Ukraine last summer, that's a lot of words for a Russian president, for any president on Ukraine. So Ukraine became apparently during the last two years even more of a preoccupation for him than it had been previously. And he became, as I also said, that much more isolated, that much more rigid, that much more unable to listen to voices other than those in his own head.
1: And so talk about that inner circle right now of individuals. It's a small subset that he may not be listening to. I mean, you have a person who is more and more backed into a corner.
2: Yes, it is. Uh, widely agreed that it's a very vertical structure. Now he sits at the top. Uh, Of course, there are some people around him, his military men and a handful of advisors. It is uh, certainly not the oligarchs who everybody mentions, but there's, there's no evidence whatsoever that they have any clout with him. There's not much evidence that anybody has any clout with him, although What we don't know yet, although we'll know more in the next few weeks, is the degree to which these handful of people who do speak to him are able to convey to him and not only convey to him, but persuade him that there is a reality on the ground which would make a ceasefire and a negotiated peace a desirable end for Russia. We We just don't have the answer to that question yet. But yes, it's a very vertical structure. He more or less alone at the top with very, very few people around him who can be even heard, not to speak of what they say absorbed.
1: So now in Ukraine, we have Zelensky. Talk a little bit about Zelensky. Talk a little bit about uh, his inner circle and what you're observing there. Well, Zelensky, again, for students of leadership, he
2: is... You know, for those of us who remember a man, uh, an author by the name of Eric Erickson, who wrote these psychobiographies, one about Mahatma Gandhi and the other about Martin Luther. His argument was, and it it, for a while was quite popular, although we hear it a little bit less, that great leaders happen to meet their moment in time Mm. and about Zelensky, Absolutely, one has to say, this is a man who met his moment. Let me just point out, as you know, because everybody knows by now, Scott, that before he became president, he had zero experience in politics. Comedian, actor. Yes, he was a comedian, or better put, a comic actor. He was in a TV sitcom series, series, which I think, by the way, is playing on Netflix now, Servant of the People, it's called. And by the way, he was not particularly good at governing. And his approval rating before the invasion was all of 25 percent. Okay, he was inexperienced and he wasn't particularly good at it. So it's not. And Ukraine was fractured. I mean, a, a divisive, you know, a little we're familiar in the United States with divisiveness. However, when this happened, somehow his skills and one of the I've been blogging almost every day on this. One of the blogs I wrote was called The Great Communicators, plural. As you know, of course, and any student of the presidency knows that it was Ronald Reagan who was in this country called The Great Communicator, which he was. So why was he a great communicator? Because he had spent years as an actor. He knew how to speak. He knew how to act. And by the way, after he was a quite successful or even very successful, these things go Hollywood actor. He was a very successful pitchman on television. So he knew how to persuade. He knew how to communicate. Well, Zelensky didn't have the many years of experience that Reagan did, but this acting skill, this capacity to convey what it is you want to convey, to put it into words. We know that some of his TV writers were writers of his speeches. And you know there are lines that he's uttered, one of them when he was offered a chance to go into exile in order to protect himself and his family was, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. So these are both one liners and these incessant speeches that he's been giving to the Congress, to the uh, European parliament in Brussels, to the Canadian parliament, to the German parliament just yesterday, I think. So his capacity to know what to do, how to do it, to say the right thing, to serve as a lightning rod for the people of Ukraine, uniting them arguably in a way they have never been united before, certainly not against Russia, mm-hmm. whereas I said, some people were pro-Russian or so they certainly have strong Russian roots. This is a rather remarkable thing he has done brilliantly in the last month. Whether this will translate into how he can govern once this is over, I don't know. And as I said, his track record before was not great. By the way, when U.S. intelligence was warning that this invasion was likely to happen, Zelensky kept saying, no, it's not Mm. until it happened. And then obviously he pivoted. But it's a great example for students of leadership, of man meets moment. He was the perfect man for the perfect
1: moment. Well, and to your point in an interesting kind of way, Biden and other leaders around the world are also following him. Talk about that. I mean, it's a very interesting dynamic, right? I mean, we we have this one actor that is causing us to react and we have this other actor who is working to influence authority figures around the world to support and aid and help and pressure.
2: Authority figures around the world and ordinary people around yes, the world. Yes, 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 yes. You know, I mean, I, I, it's just amazing how the American public, you know, it took Zelensky or and or Putin to get the Republicans and Democrats to agree on something and to get the <laughs> American public, you know, end this, at least for the moment, this incredible divisiveness on every issue. There is very strong backing, as you know, in this country for helping Ukraine. And Biden, if anything, has to put has had to at least uh, what he felt he's had to do put the brakes on. So yes, I mean, of course, Biden has not done any more than the German Chancellor has done or anybody else. Any of these leaders, everything that uh, Zelensky has asked them to do, we know that. However, the dynamic to which I allude does leave the leader-follower framework somewhat wanting. Yeah. Because Zelensky has gotten other, quote, leaders essentially to follow his lead, and Putin, above all, Putin has gotten. Putin has forced Zelensky to react, and Putin and Zelensky together have forced other national leaders to react. So the language that we're used to using Falls somewhat short, and we make a mistake if we say this is leader to leader. And we certainly make a mistake if we simply frame it as leaders and followers. That also doesn't quite work, at least not when you're talking about Zelensky and Putin getting other national leaders to follow. So, for those of us who are digging deep into this, rethinking the language or at least defining our terms probably makes good
1: sense. Well, and another contextual shift. I would imagine that that is a big player that maybe we haven't touched on yet. I mean, briefly in some ways, but just the social media component of this. I mean, obviously there's a very toxic side to social media, a very toxic side to that whole universe, but it's also right now helping to frame for everyone immediately what's going on. And that may not have been the case even 10 years ago.
2: Yes, Uh, Thank you for bringing that point up about social media and media in general. Uh, Social media, yes, Zelensky, he's 40, I think he's 45. He knows how to use social media and he's used it to maximum effect. What's interesting about this last month is media generally. It's not just new media, it's old media. 48 hours ago, I think it was when he spoke to Congress in the middle of that 20 something minute speech, I think it was. He had an extremely powerful clip yes it was put together in somewhat new ways cut from the past to the present but it was essentially a movie clip Mm -hmm. and i might add the way many of us are getting our news these days is not just by going online but turning on the television cnn which is another conversation because it's had a lot of difficulties as a corporation recently has found its purpose again, its original 24-7, all news, all the time purpose in the last month. Viewership has shot up. People turn to CNN. It's not the only channel, of course, but it is a return to old media, along with new, new media and social media in particular, as you point out, Scott, that is among the contextual characteristics of what has gone on in the last month. And I would argue, I've listened to some experts on Russia, they will say certain things that, in my view, does not take into account the contemporaneous components that we're talking about, including, Scott, your reference properly so to the
1: role of social media. So how does this play out? In an ideal world, how does this uh, resolve? I don't see that path clearly. Maybe you do.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, as you know, Scott, there are or there have been... uh, Increasingly, in the last few days, talks of negotiations between the Russians and the Ukrainians, and everybody says this can't possibly work. It's not, you know, I'm not going to go through the various suggestions for compromise. I will say only two things. There are several possibilities. This is saying the obvious. One is, however, this is not a possibility, it is a must, which is, in my view, The West must make sure, no matter how they try to save Putin's face, they must make sure he loses. He cannot win this particular conflict Mm. because if he does, he will continue. Mm. We will never, the West will never hear the end of it. And I think people increasingly, they didn't understand it two, three, four weeks ago. I think increasingly they understand it now, whatever Mm. that entails. That's number one. Number two, never rule out the unexpected. When leaders fall, as I don't have to tell you, they sometimes fall overnight. I don't rule out that somehow he he vanishes in ways that we can't possibly anticipate. Probably the most likely scenario here is one of two, or scenarios is one of two, a wretched protracted war or a ceasefire in the relatively near future in which both sides purport to win, but both sides
1: actually lose. Because ultimately, I mean, when we come down to you know compromise or what does is, what is some type of ceasefire look like? I, I can't imagine Ukraine accepting anything but uh, Russian soldiers completely exiting their, their land. That's true, Scott. The question is what constitutes, quote, to use your language,
2: their land? Yeah. Yeah. In other words does Ukraine now formally cede Crimea? Does Ukraine now formally cede to Russia East Ukraine, the Donbas region where which has a, in effect been occupied by Russia since 2014? So mm-hmm. your line is correct, but the question is what constitutes and what will constitute in the future their land.
1: Well, wow. any final thoughts, considerations? Ways people should be thinking about this issue, Barbara, what comes to mind for you?
2: I think it's got a remind. This is an audience. Your audience is a leadership audience. These are students of leadership, experts in leadership, people just interested in leadership. That's why they're listening to your podcast. Yep. I can only go back to what I said a few moments ago. No one has is a more ardent proponent of what I call the leadership system the equal importance of followers and context than I am this then for your audience, as well as for me is a visceral, as well as a factual reminder, how one man can make a monstrous. And I use the word monstrous advisedly in several different ways, how one man can make a monstrous difference.
1: Mm, Powerful summary. Yes. Well, Barbara. I'm going to continue to follow your blog. I've been following and some of the articles where you explore, for instance, kind of the corporate reaction to some of what's happening and some of the shifts there. I think I'm going to put that in the show notes so that people can follow along with how you're interpreting and how you're thinking about this topic, because I think it's so fascinating to look at this through the lens of how you see leadership, but then also your expertise. On this part of the world. I'm I'm thankful that we have people like you to help us make sense because to your point, there is a lot of grist for the mill right now to be observing and to be paying close attention to the dynamics afoot. And all of us are students in this in this context. We are all learning in real time and making sense of what's happening. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for the writing that you're doing. And again, for listeners, there is a link in the show notes now. And if you want to know how Barbara's thinking about this topic, she's actively writing, I sense a book in the future, Barbara. <laughs> Trying to make sense. I'm holding of- <laughs> my head. <laughs> I'm going to call you the Tom Brady of authors. <laughs> just
2: blogged about him today, by the way. You're right. I'm addicted. You're right. I'm addicted. I I lust. I lust to write. You're right. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation and I greatly appreciate your pointed and obviously knowledgeable questions. So thank you very much.
1: Well, we are are all fortunate that you love to write. We are very, very, very fortunate. So thank you so much, Barbara. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro.
1: You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.